You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. So our passage is Acts 28, verses 1 through 31. It's just the whole chapter, and it's the last chapter. Um, So if you'll take a minute to turn there um, in your Bible or your phone, if you're wanting to do that, go ahead. Um, Again, it's Acts 28, 1 through 31. And then if you're able, when you're ready, will you stand for the reading of God's word? It says, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun (laughs) to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Uh, Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we, co- we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. 
When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everyone it is spoken against, or everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner, I'm one of the pastors here, and um, I want to welcome you to Salem. This is your first time. I'm glad you're here. Um, this is the last time that we're going to be looking at the book of Acts, and I'm really sad about that because I have probably enjoyed preaching through Acts more than any other book I've ever preached through. Um, and as I've said so many times, uh, the book of Acts is uh, not so much the Acts of the Apostles. But it's the actions of the ascended Christ. It's like part two of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is about the life of Christ on earth. The book of Acts is about the reign of Christ from heaven. It's the same Jesus, though, that was born from the Virgin Mary in Luke and is now reigning from heaven in Acts 28. And um, it ends in this very strange way. It seems anticlimactic. You know, why would you end? I mean, Luke could have ended this at any number of places. Why would you end with the fact that Paul is in prison? For two years, he's just in prison in Rome. And uh, it's a really strange thing to do if you're going to um, end a gospel of uh, supposedly the reign of Christ spreading across the whole earth. That's what it was all about. If you remember Acts 2, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And I have given you all power to proclaim the gospel. Uh, so why is um, he in prison um, I think that a lot of us think that um, the reign of Christ is slowing down. Uh, the, it's, it's, it's actually stopped spreading. That um, you know, the reign of Christ around the earth is, um, especially in America or Europe, is, um, is dwindling, and his influence is 
waning and that uh, the church is kind of uh, falling apart all over the earth. And that's maybe what people thought in the, in the days when Luke wrote this, that that same thing was happening. And, and so Paul, I think, puts you in a place where you might imagine that because he is in prison. It does look like Rome has kind of won. Um, but in fact, although Paul is in chains and he is for two years in this uh, Mamertine prison is what it's called. You can go there today and still see where he was. The fact is that the very last word of the, of the book is without hindrance, bold and without hindrance. So in other words, there is nothing that is hindering the gospel from going out. Uh, although it looks like chains would do that or the soldier would do that. Uh, it, it looks like a prison would do that. But in fact, um, we see that the synagogue leaders are coming to his prison cell. Some of them are believing. Uh, we see that the imperial guard is coming to his prison cell. You see that in the book of Philippians, that the gospel is spread throughout the imperial guard. And then not only that, but from this prison cell, he wrote the book of Colossians. He wrote the book of Ephesians. He wrote the book of Philemon. In other words, the gospel, even though it looks like it's caged up, and you might think that in our day, that the gospel's kind of caged up. Um, in fact... He wrote Ephesians 1.20, which says, Jesus sits in the heavens, in the invisible realm, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And he is putting all his enemies under his feet. Paul wrote that from the Roman prison cell. So that should give us confidence that the kingdom is here, uh, that it started when Christ came, and that it's continuing to spread without hindrance, in spite of the fact that we look around us and maybe it seems like it's not. The fact that it is. It is even in a prison cell. So I want to look at the kingdom and then finally the triumph of the kingdom. Those two things. It starts in Malta uh, on a shipwreck. So last week was the famous story of the sea voyage and the shipwreck. That story ended in Malta. It's a little island. It's 12 square miles. It's the size of an emerald isle. And in verse 1 it says, uh, this is Luke writing because he's on the boat with Paul. We learned that the island was called Malta. It's kind of like the, the TV show Lost, where they don't really know where they are. Uh, they had no idea they were in Malta. In fact, they didn't seem to know that there was a Malta. Because it says uh, that we learned the island was called Malta. It's so tiny that they don't even know what this thing is. I think it's where Napoleon ended him, his life. But anyway, they wash ashore uh, on this place called uh, St. Paul's Bay. To this day, it's called St. Paul's Bay because it's the very place where the, the ship wrecked. And it's late October. We found that out last week. It's, it's rainy because there have been storms passing by right in the middle of the Mediterranean. You know, it's probably like 50 degrees. Uh, it's the kind of wet cold that gets into your bones. And then in verse 2, we read that um, the people there, the natives of the land, showed us unusual kindness for they had kindled a fire. And welcomed all of us because it had begun to rain and was cold. The coldest I've ever been in my life was in Edinburgh when it was 50 degrees and raining. And I remember walking into a museum in Edinburgh that uh, we walked into only because we could get out of the rain. And it felt inc- there was a heater that was blowing down right when you walked into the museum. It was an incredible feeling. And that's, that's the feeling that you're supposed to have when you read this story. I mean, they've been waterlogged on this journey for so long. And now they're here. And I love how Paul joins in in verse 3, and he gathers a bundle of sticks and he puts them on the fire. So Luke is creating this scene of hospitality. Uh, Hospitality from 
Paul to the Maltese and from the Maltese to Paul. And that's one thing about the kingdom of God is that it always comes into a culture and it affirms the best of that culture. It's always joining in, diving in to whatever is good in that city or that state or that country or wherever it goes. The kingdom of God always comes in and it's called common grace. God's grace to every culture, regardless of whether they have uh, the gospel or not. Common grace uh, always comes in and affirms the culture, which is what's going on here. The, hospita- the mutual hospitality between the Maltese and the people on the ship. You see that in Athens with philosophy, where Paul joins, he, he quotes some of the Athenian philosophers, so we already saw that. With Roman legal system, we've seen how in the book of Acts, Paul is using the Roman legal system to his advantage. Contentious to call himself a Roman citizen. And we've seen it in Geniga, uh, Jewish synagogue life, where he's always going to the synagogue as a place where he can preach the gospel. So we see that God is affirming all these different cultures. But then, in addition to the common grace, you see this special grace come in, which is always disruptive. And, and there's no culture that inherently has the special, unique grace of Christ which is uh, God's love for enemies, God's love for people who don't deserve it, uh, undeserved love, undeserved favor. And uh, the, the good news always disrupts the way people imagine their world, the values, institutions, laws, symbols of the world, um, sometimes called the social imaginary. The, the gospel always comes into the way people imagine things to be, and it disrupts it. So you see that in verse 3 with the story of the viper. Why does he have the story of the viper? Well, one reason, I think, is the viper symbolizes the great enemy of God, which is crushed under Paul's feet. But also, more importantly, it shows that the gospel is more powerful than karma, uh, than what the, what the people on the island call justice, with a capital J. A vi- Paul is uh, putting the sticks in the fire, and a viper comes out because of the heat, and it fastened on his hand. And they said, no doubt, these are the people of Malta, no doubt this man is a murderer because justice has not allowed him to live. That's kind of the common view of what justice is around the world. Karma. You ask most people in America today and they would say they believe that you reap what you sow. Whatever happens to you is what you, either from a former life or something you've done in this life, but whatever happens to you, uh, what goes around comes around. So you're just reaping Uh, the rewards of what you've done, or not the rewards. And so this is what they're saying, that no doubt this guy has done something really bad because a viper came out and bit him. And then as soon as Paul miraculously survives uh, the viper attack, then they say, verse 6, when they saw that no misfortune had come to him, they changed their mind and said, oh, he's a god. So they go from a murderer to a god because of karma. Because it's view of justice. And Christians often live um, with a very sanctified view of karma. But it's still karma. The whole idea that um, God will bless you like if you give is an example of that. Uh, if you do a good job, um, then God is going to bless you. And so if somebody is, you know, is poor, then you think they've got to be lazy or irresponsible or something like that. Um, a really, I, I, there's this documentary called Shiny Happy People that I watched a little bit of. And the basic idea with the Gothard movement, which is kind of exposed in this documentary, is that if you run your family well, according to the right principles, then your kids are going to turn out great. And the Duggars were part of that whole movement, which is why they had so many children. And so the, the corollary would be if your kids are not doing well, then you've screwed up somewhere along the line as a parent. And a lot of Christians believe these 
lies that come from karma. But it is endemic to all cultures, is this idea of karma. And the kingdom says, absolutely not. This is not the way that God operates. It's very counterintuitive. We don't live in a meritocracy. The kingdom says, verse 9, they brought to Paul all who were sick. This is after he survived the snake bite. And now they are bringing to him people who would have been considered cursed in that culture. These people who were sick would have been thought to be um, nobodies. They've done something wrong. And Paul wants them all to come to him. So all these people are coming out, you know, maybe of uh, their parents have put them in a closet somewhere or something. They've hid them away because there's something wrong with them. They're sick. They're cursed. But Paul says, no, bring them all to me. And he heals their diseases. He is, uh, he is undoing the theory about sick people being cursed. Not only that, he's also loving people who called him a murderer. So he's showing them this unique grace of Christ. And that's what the kingdom is all about. It's a different way of reigning and ruling. It is a rule of grace, of undeserved favor. And this happens for three months. 90 days of these signs and wonders of grace. That's just poured out on the untouchables. On the people who are considered uh, untouchable in that on that island in Malta. And it made me think about um, one of my favorite movies. I haven't mentioned this movie in a long time, but, but Mad Max Fury Road is an incredible movie. I'm, it's not what it seems. Um, and in that movie, uh, in the end, um, the main character, uh, Mad Max, and, uh, and his, um, the partner with him in their overthrow of the empire is named Furiosa. And the next movie is going to be about Furiosa. She's amazing. Uh, so... Max and Furiosa have overthrown the empire of Immortan Joe. And uh, Immortan Joe was this man, this is post-nuclear, um, post-nuclear holocaust. And, and people are diseased, they have a lot of defects, they're lame, they're blind, they're disfigured. And Immortan Joe controls them by occasionally pouring out water from this huge waterfall. He controls all the water in the region. And so when they overthrow him... Uh, they go up to the waterfall and they just let it loose and all the water pours out. And you see all the people come underneath the water and they're used to him pulling the lever back from Morton Joe. They just keep it going and the water just keeps pouring out over and over on these people. And it made me think about the way the kingdom has come to Malta and just poured out grace on untouchables. And not only that, this grace transforms this Roman slave ship, which is what it was, carrying all these prisoners... Uh, into something like the Dawn Treader, you know, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, we came to Petoli, verse 13, and they're exhausted, their clothes are in tatters, they're in rags, and the church invited us all to stay with them for seven days. Again, um, grace. Uh, these are people on the boat like soldiers and prisoners and the centurion Julius, who would have been potentially a threat to the church of Petoli. But um, they welcome, the church welcomes them all in for an entire week and gives them beds, gives them probably clothes, gives them food. Uh, people they've never met, people that might have been dangerous to them. But uh, this ship that Paul is upon has now become a ship of grace. As it finally lands on the European mainland in Petoli, 150 miles to, to Rome. You're still, you have to drag the grain 150 miles from the ship to Rome. But right when they land on the mainland, uh, they're welcomed in by the church, this community of grace. And then uh, the last step in this grace, and I love this part, Paul is approaching Rome, and he's afraid that the Roman church is going to be afraid of him or be ashamed of him because he's basically on death row. 
So he's coming to Rome and he's not sure what kind of reception he's going to get from the Romans because he is on death row, uh, because he has been thrown in prison. But in verse 15, this is kind of like fans showing up at 2 a.m. You know, when your team wins the championship and they get off the bus and these tons of fans are there. It says, when the brothers heard about us, they came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. So they just shower Paul with grace, even though he was nervous about coming to Rome. And it says in verse 15, on seeing them, Paul thanked God. He probably fell to his knees, thanked the Lord and took courage that he's been welcomed warmly into the church of Rome. So I think the question for us is where are we showing grace like this? Where are we part of the kingdom coming? Where are we undermining karma and the idea that certain people are cursed? And uh, being part of a meritocracy where uh, supposedly those who work hard get on top and those who are on the bottom are lazy or irresponsible. You know, where are we blessing people instead of muttering about them, encouraging people, showing up unexpectedly to see people who wouldn't think that you would be there or who are afraid of you and showing up with love or encouraging people who wounded you, Um, people who called you you names. They called him a murderer, and yet he goes and he heals people who you disagree with strongly. Where are we seeing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of grace, disrupting the culture we live in? Where is that happening here? Uh, the good news is that when it does happen, it's so powerful uh, and so um, shocking to people that it, it is triumphant, ultimately. And what is triumphant is not power. Uh, it is not the sword. That's not what triumphs. Uh, ultimately, it's not money. Uh, I, I keep mentioning this show, Succession, where in the, in the show, Succession, you would think that power and money uh, are what really run the world. And that's not true. That this tells us that the triumph is of grace, of, of dying for someone that doesn't deserve it, uh, of, of suffering love for people. So you see that now he's in Rome, verse 17. And we see the triumph in Rome. After three days, the first thing he wants to do, maybe he's finally like healing a little bit. Uh, maybe he took three days to recover. He's still, he's in prison. Um, but after three days, he, his first instinct is, I've got to tell my brothers the good news. I want to tell them in person. I want to see their faces and tell them um, in, in their presence. So uh, the very people who put him in prison... These are the people that have hunted him down across the Roman Empire. They've tried to kill him many times, but he wants to see them. So he calls the local leaders of the synagogue. That's the first thing he does. And the very first word he says to them is, uh, is brothers. And there's no malice in that. There's no chip on his shoulder. There's no, it's not cynical. It's not a gotcha. He says, brothers, the reason I'm on death row is the hope of Israel. Which he's used that phrase before, the hope of Israel. That's why I'm on death row. And uh, he loves that word, that phrase, so much that he can just talk about it all day long. Which he does. He does in verse 23. Uh, From morning till evening, he talked with them about the kingdom of God. From Moses to the prophets. Starting in Genesis to Malachi. He is just uh, one verse after another. Showing them that what they've been waiting for for 2,000 years. The Jewish people... Just suffering under empire after empire after empire. Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. 
And finally, he says, I'm bringing you news of the victory. I have heard about the victory. I've met the victor. And the Messiah has come. He's reigning from heaven. And he's restoring everything. And he was certain they would believe him. You'd be like telling someone, the allies have, have won. It's VE day. And uh, in verse 24 it says, but, but many of them did not believe. And this keeps happening to him again. He cannot believe again and again this keeps happening, where he's telling them this good news. It would kind of be like if you've been waiting for so long to get pregnant, and you, you tell your husband, I'm pregnant, we're finally having a baby, and, and he just shrugs and walks away. Paul is shocked that they do not care or even are opposed to him for saying the Messiah has come. Because he thought that's what being Jewish was all about, was waiting for the Messiah. Uh, but, the, but many of them don't believe. But he's still undeterred. And the last thing he says to them, verse 28, is this salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. And so now it's kind of like the final stage in, in some ways of a rocket. Israel was like this booster rocket that got the shuttle off the ground, and now it's kind of falling away, and the rocket, the Messiah, which is the whole point of Israel, is now launched. And they do listen. Verse 29, for two years he welcomed everyone and proclaimed the kingdom of God. And I think that the soldier is the symbol of the Gentiles. Um, Luke mentions this this soldier who is literally chained to Paul. That's the way they did it. They would chain the soldier to Paul. So this guy is a captive audience. He cannot get away from Paul. Uh, Verse 16, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him, was chained to him. And how many times do you think that soldier heard Paul's testimony? Uh, Paul, even in the book of Acts, you have it four times. Paul loved to tell his testimony about how he met Christ. It says in Philippians 1.13, the entire imperial guard heard about Jesus. So over and over and over again, Paul was telling them his story about how he met Christ. And if you pull back to 20,000 feet and and think about what's going on here, uh, Caesar... Nero has brought Paul, the apostle, uh, from Jerusalem right under his nose. Uh, He has brought, in some ways, the greatest threat to his empire right under his citadel. Uh, The the prison he's in is right beneath the Capitoline Hill. And from that place that Paul has been brought by Caesar, on Caesar's dime, you know, Caesar's paid for this, to get him there. And from that place, he is sending out marching orders to Ephesus and Colossae and Philip. Uh, Philemon, and all these people are coming to him and hearing the gospel. And I thought about how, you know, in, uh, in World War II, Churchill, Winston Churchill, they had these war rooms beneath Westminster. And that's where, underneath uh, the Capitol, uh, Churchill was essentially uh, running uh, the war. They had a big map room there. And this would be like if Hitler built a war, the war room for the Allies right under the Reichstag. You know, he, had, he had put them right underneath his nose. That's what's going on here, that that Jesus is such a, a, such a great strategist and, and leader that he has brought his, his main messenger right underneath the palace of Caesar and from that place is undermining the empire with his grace. And the very last act and the many acts of the ascended Lord that we read about in verse 31, the very last act is that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom with all boldness, fearless, uh, and unhindered. The end. Unhindered was the last word. Without hindrance. In other words, nothing was stopping it. It was unstoppable. The, the prison couldn't stop it. The guard couldn't stop it. Uh, 
Nero couldn't stop it. It's like there were roots that were spreading invisibly out of this jail cell. And it's not through huge churches. It's not through massive revivals or concerts. I mean, I love the Asbury revival, but that's not what's going on here. It's, um, that's not the way the kingdom tends to spread. I heard a, um, I heard a Finnish uh, Lutheran theologian said, the motto of American Christianity is, where two or 3,000 are gathered, there I am with them. And that is not the way that the kingdom is spreading at the end of the book of Acts. The kingdom is spreading through one little man in a, in a cell who is essentially chained to the wall. He, can't, he has no Wi-Fi. He's in the basement. And all he's got is his pen and a piece of paper. And it's like a mustard seed. You know, somebody once compared the kingdom to a mustard seed. And uh, this guy said that although the mustard seed is the smallest of the seeds, when you put it in the ground... It grows and becomes the largest of the garden plants. And it spreads out, you know, long branches. And in those branches, the birds of the air find their shade. And what Jesus was talking about was the birds of the air are all the different nations. He's hearkening back to a vision in the Old Testament where this tree, which started out in this tiny little seed, the smallest seed is the mustard seed. And that little tiny mustard seed has grown into this massive tree that spreads across the whole world And all the birds of the air find their nests under its shade, under its protection. So churches have always bumbled around and screwed up and done terrible things. We've seen that in the history of Christendom. We see that in the book of Acts. Uh, We see the financial hypocrisy with Ananias and Sapphira. We saw that. Uh, We see the Paul and Barnabas having this blow-up fight, the schism. Two leaders can't get along. We've seen that throughout church history. We see in, in, in Antioch, the church almost splits over circumcision. You know, not a, not a huge issue, and they almost split over that. We've seen that. Um, we saw in uh, Peter uh, rejecting outsiders, which the church has often done. So in the book of Acts, you see this church really messed up. You know, the church is not, uh, it's full of sinners. So it's not perfect by any means. But at the same time, you see over and over and over again the victory of the king Unhindered, You see, uh, Saul himself was the greatest uh, conquest, probably. The, the main opponent of Christianity has now become uh, the primary spokesperson for the gospel. Um, you saw that with Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Uh, Christ won a great victory of grace over Cornelius. We saw that with the Ethiopian eunuch who brought the gospel all the way down to Africa as he was conquered by the grace of Christ. We saw that with Elymas the magician. Uh, with Sergius Paulus in Cyprus. We saw that with Lydia, the wealthy uh, businesswoman in Philippi. She was conquered by the gospel, and she brought a, a church into her home, her large mansion. The church was brought there. We saw that in the jailer in Philippi uh, who had Paul in custody. He was conquered by grace. We saw that in, in Athens with the Stoic philosophers, uh, several of whom came to know Christ through the preaching of Paul. We saw that in Corinth with um, Gallio, uh, the mayor of Corinth, and the seven sons of Sceva. And we saw it in Ephesus where he conquers the great goddess Artemis and shows that Christ is more powerful, that Christ is more gracious. We saw that with Claudius Lysias in Rome, this uh, centurion who was guarding Paul and was essentially won over to Paul by the grace that Paul showed. We saw it with Felix and Festus and Agrippa and now Julius. We saw it with Julius, who was the centurion who was leading the whole boat trip. And now with whoever this guy is who's chained up to 
Paul. We see the grace of Christ unhindered. And then it spread and conquered the whole Roman Empire. And then from there, it conquered all of Europe. And this is kind of simplified, but then it came to the Americas. And then spread to Africa, where in the year 1900, there were 6 million Christians. Today, there's 600 million Christians. And it's going to Asia, where in China, there are uh, 250 million Christians alone. And spreading unhindered. And this is not triumphalism. You know, this is not me saying that uh, Christianity is going to win the culture war. Because the way the victory goes is not by controlling the Supreme Court, nor is it by having massive cultural influence. So the fact that the chosen has gone viral is not our hope, uh, or that Kanye West became a Christian, or Lauren Daigle's really popular, or The Sound of Freedom is the number one movie in America. You know, these are not the things we're putting in our hope. These are not the victory of Christ. The victory of Christ is like this incredibly simple meal. And the words um, that come from our singing and from... Uh, our liturgy and preaching and the benediction. That's what, that's, these are the simple instruments that conquer the world. I mean, this, during COVID, we met outside in that field right there. And literally what we brought into that field was a table, uh, a little bit of wine and grape juice, some bread, some instruments, some speakers, and then y'all did the rest. You brought your chairs. Uh, that's what, that's all church is. It's incredibly simple. And, uh, and that's what, and, and the reason that um, the reason the victory is so beautiful is because uh, it is a victory uh, of this incredibly loving, omnipotent creator God uh, who comes to his rebellious creatures who hate him and want nothing to do with him. And he says, here, I give uh, myself to you fully. Uh, I take all of your rebellion, all your sin upon myself, and I give you all of my righteousness, all of my love. I delight over you. And that's what we see in this meal, that um, on the night he's betrayed, uh, on the night that we um, turned our back on him, and I mean, betrayal is one of the greatest pains, they say, of any pain a human can feel. If uh, anyone's ever cheated on you, uh, you know that. If a friend has backstabbed you, you know that. And so uh, that's the word that Paul uses when he's describing the Lord's Supper on the night he was betrayed, uh, not the night we praised Christ, not the night that um, people sang Hosanna to him as he rode in on Palm Sunday on a donkey uh, with palm branches. It was on the night he was betrayed that he said, this is where I'm going to show you the full extent of my love. This is the fullness of the glory of the Son of God. He said, this is my body broken for you. On the night he was betrayed. And on that night, he took wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And so whenever you eat from the bread and drink from the cup. Uh, you're proclaiming my death and resurrection until I come again. So these are the weapons of our warfare. Uh, the sacrificial love of a dying God, the Lamb of God. Um, it's an amazing kind of victory. And it's a victory without any coercion. No force at all. Uh, simply persuasion by love. And so if you're here tonight and... Um, you don't know what to do right now because um, you haven't been to church in a while or if ever, maybe you've never been to church. We're so glad you're here. Then uh, just know that um, anyone is welcome to this table who believes the things I've been saying. Uh, you don't have to be a member of the church. You don't be part of this church. You don't have to be Presbyterian. Um, all you have to do is say, I, I believe. I believe in this Jesus that you're talking about. That's the only qualification. In fact, the only qualification is to say, I need God's grace. We come up here like this as beggars in need of God's grace. So 
That's the only qualification. Uh, if that's not you, we're so glad you're here, but we would ask that you not partake because we don't want you to be forced into hypocrisy. So there's no coercion at all. And if you don't take, nobody's going to be watching you or just people in prison. Remember, we love these rascals.